Amazon Ring has been hit with a very scary FTC complaint and fine. Kaspersky claims that their iPhones have been hit with a brand new spyware, a dental data breach that even made the mainstream headlines and much, much more. Welcome to Surveillance Report 136, where we are dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news from the past week. I am Nathan from The New Oil. And I'm Henry from TechLore. Our promo segment this week... Same as always, you know, we got Patreon. If you want to support us and get a little bit of something in return for $5 a month, you can contribute a question. We had a couple of good questions this week. And for $10 a month, you don't have to listen to the spiel and you also get more of our thoughts, which are peppered throughout the episode. If you are not interested in the perks, but you still want to support us in a recurring way so you don't have to think about it, you can just kind of set and forget. We have LibrePay. And last but not least, if you want to support us and maintain the most privacy possible, we accept Monero. So whatever contribution method you choose, we see those contributions, we greatly appreciate them, and we thank you for keeping us going. Without further ado, we will launch into our highlight story. So the headline says, Amazon's ring to pay $5.8 million after staffing contractors caught snooping on customer videos, FTC says. So Ring will pay five point, for those of you who don't know, that's the smart doorbell owned by Amazon, will pay $5.8 million over claims brought by the Federal Trade Commission that Ring employees and contractors had broad and unrestricted access to customers' videos for years. The FTC says that Ring employees and contractors are able to view, download, and transfer customer-sensitive video data for their own purposes as a result of, quote, dangerously overbroad access and lax attitude toward privacy and security, unquote. According to the FTC's complaint, Ring gave every employee, this is another quote, every employee as well as hundreds of Ukraine-based third-party contractors full access to every customer video, regardless of whether the employer or contractor actually needed that access to perform his or her job function, unquote. The FTC also said that Ring staffing contractors, quote, could readily download any customer's videos and then view, share, or disclose those videos at will, unquote. The FTC alleged on at least two occasions, Ring employees improperly accessed the private Ring videos of women. In one of the cases, the FTC said the employee's spying went on for months undetected by Ring. So Ring is planning to send notices to affected customers, and they say that the individuals who were doing this kind of stuff are no longer employed by Ring. The government's complaint also said that Ring failed to respond to multiple reports of credential stuffing where attackers used stolen credentials from one data breach to break into the accounts using the same credentials on other sites. The FTC said that Ring allowed the use of easily guessable passwords, such as password and 12345678, which made brute forcing accounts easier, and that Ring failed to act sooner to prevent account hacks. The FTC claims that more than 55,000 U.S. customers had their accounts compromised between January 2019 and March 2020. As a result, in more than a dozen cases, attackers maintained access to hacked accounts for more than a month. Along with paying $5.8 million to settle the FTC's allegations, Ring also agreed to establish and maintain a data security program with regular assessments for the next 20 years, as well as disclosing what access its employees and contractors have to customer data. A Ring spokesperson said in an email statement to TechCrunch that Ring disagreed with the FTC's allegations and denied violating the law. In my opinion, that really sums up everything. I don't have much to add. I think it's just um, definitely one of the stories to share with the normies because I think a lot of people own this thing and they don't see it as a big deal. But, you know, everyone who walks in and out, and even if you're not an owner of a Ring doorbell, you could still be caught up in this in some way, shape or form, which is the other unfortunate side of this stuff, because if your neighbor has it, then you could be in these recordings as well. Quick personal note on that front. I was surprised. Last year, I went to go visit my mother, and she has an Alexa. I was really surprised when I visited. I straight up told her, I was like, hey, it's your house, it's your rules, but I would really appreciate it if you would turn off the Alexa while we're there. And she actually did. 
didn't push back at all. She was like, okay. So it never hurts to ask your friends and family like, hey, you can say no because you're a person. I'd appreciate it if you did this privacy thing while I'm around. And they might. Just on the topic of that, I wanted to share that. All right. And now we're going to move into the data breaches. We're going to start with an NHS data breach. Trusts shared patient details with Facebook without consent. NHS trusts are sharing intimate details about patients' medical conditions, appointments, and treatments with Facebook without consent and despite promising never to do so. An observer investigation has uncovered a covert tracking tool in the websites of 20 NHS trusts, which has for years collected browsing information and shared it with the tech giant in a major breach of privacy. The data includes granular details of pages viewed, buttons clicked, and keywords searched. It is matched to the user's IP address and identifier linked to an individual or household, and in many cases, details of their Facebook account. Records of information sent to the firm by NHS websites reveal it includes data which, when linked to an individual, could reveal personal medical details. It was collected from patients who visited hundreds of NHS webpages about HIV, self-harm, gender identity services, sexual health, cancer children treatments, and more. It also includes details of when web users clicked buttons to book an appointment, order a repeat prescription, request a referral, or to complete an online counseling course. Millions of patients are potentially affected. If you hear noises, it's probably my cat. He's feeling very talkative. Our next story is the dental one I told you guys about. MCNA dental data breach impacts 8.9 million people after ransomware attack. MCNA Dental is one of the largest government-sponsored dental care and oral health insurance providers in the U.S. So they cover things like Medicaid and CHIP, which I think is a California program. The data breached includes full name, address, date of birth, phone number, email, social security number, driver's license, government ID number, health insurance info, dental info, and financial info. This is yet another breach filed with the Office of the Maine Attorney General. So thank you, Maine, so that we know about these things. MCNA says it has taken all the appropriate steps to remediate the situation and enhance the security of its systems to prevent similar instances from occurring in the future. It has also contacted law enforcement authorities to help prevent the misuse of stolen information. Additionally, the notices sent to impacted individuals enclose instructions on receiving 12 months of free identity theft protection and credit monitoring services through IDX. The article also says that not everyone will get a notice since not all addresses are current. So if you or someone you know has used this service, I recommend going to IDX's website and checking to see if you are affected. Up next, new hacking forum leaks data of 478,000 RAID forums members. The table contains the registration information for all those members, including their usernames, email addresses, hashed passwords, registration dates, and a variety of other information related to the software. The leak table contains member information for users who registered between March 20th, 2015 and September 24th, 2020, likely when the database was dumped. This was leaked by RAID's successor, Exposed. Bleeping Computer has confirmed that the information for accounts in the database contains known registration information. Additionally, members of the forum have also confirmed that their information is in the MySQL table, indicating that the leak table is legit. While it's likely the database is already in the hands of law enforcement after it was seized, this data could still be useful for security researchers who commonly build profiles of threat actors. Using the leaked registration information, researchers can learn more about the threat actors and potentially link them to other malicious activities. Next up comes from Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, who had a ransomware attack that affected 2.5 million people. They are a Massachusetts-based nonprofit health service provider, and the data included full names, physical addresses, phone numbers, dates of birth, health insurance info, social security numbers, provider, taxpayer ID numbers, and quote, clinical information, including medical history, diagnoses, treatment, dates of service, and provider names, unquote. This impacts both current and former members, and the organization claims that there is no evidence of misuse yet, 
No ransomware gang has yet taken credit. Burton Snowboards discloses a data breach after a February attack. Burton is a leading and one of the most well-known snowboard brands, with its products being sold in thousands of stores worldwide. This includes names, social security numbers, and financial account information. Affected users have had passwords reset as well. So if you have an account with this snowboard company, I mean, go check it out. Our last story is just a quick update. Toyota finds more misconfigured servers leaking customer info. So a couple weeks ago, actually given my terrible memory, it was probably like a month ago, we covered a story about how Toyota had a misconfigured database that was exposing data for customers who used certain Toyota subscriptions and apps for their vehicles and stuff like that. We now know that there was a second breach. The original one was October 2016 through May 2023. This new one is February 2015 through May 2023. And this also impacted Lexus vehicles. If you are a Toyota or Lexus user, more details in the article. All right, so let's go into companies. And the first one is from Google. So Google Wallet for Android now supports digital IDs. Google says the feature is rolling out this month and it will slowly start bringing states online this year. Your state has to be one of the few that actually supports this, obviously, and Google says that Maryland residents can use the feature right now and that in the coming months, residents of Arizona, Colorado, and Georgia will join them. IDs are saved locally on your device, but Google lets you remove them remotely from your Google account. So if you lose your phone, you can still secure your ID. The Android 11 version of the Identity Credential API, Google supposedly has a direct access mode that can transfer your ID over NFC, even if you don't have enough power to boot up the phone. So this would be something I assumed is stored kind of offline and can still be transmitted, which is cool. But Google says that this will require special hardware support. Our next story comes from Life360 who we've talked about before, they are being sued for selling location data. So this is a federal suit being brought on behalf of a Florida miner and his family who say they would never have used the app had they known about data sales. They allege, quote, unjust enrichment, unquote, citing a December 2021 markup investigation that revealed Life360 was selling the precise location of millions of users, largely kids and families, to about a dozen different data broker, uh, location data brokers. Quick background, we did cover this story. Life360 is... I think they're one of those apps that markets themselves to like parents, like know where your kids are and keep an eye on your kids and be a helicopter parent who stalks your kids because you don't trust them and all that fun stuff. They got caught selling children's location data, as the article says. So this company or this family is now, I believe, filing a class action lawsuit Maybe it's just an individual lawsuit, but the complaint alleges that the data sold was used to identify users and their visits to sensitive locations, including, this is a quote, including places of worship, uh, places of religious worship, places that may be used to infer an LGBT LGBTQ plus identification, domestic abuse shelters, medical facilities, and welfare and homeless shelters, unquote. The complaint claims this poses an unwarranted intrusion into the most private areas of consumers' lives and could expose them to stigma, discrimination, physical violence, emotional distress, and other harms. The suit is demanding a jury trial and seeks compensatory, statutory, and punitive damages to be determined by the court. On May 26th, the judge in the case approved an order to delay proceedings until after a mutually agreed upon private mediation session on August 21st. The parties have until August 25th to submit a status report to the court. The markup will continue to follow this case. WeChat makes facial recognition payment systems talk to the hand. Chinese microblogging site WeChat has launched the ability to make payments by swiping the palm of a hand over facial recognition devices. After binding a WeChat account to the device and putting a palm print on record, users just wave their camera embedded scanning surface to complete a purchase. The system recognizes the palm prints, veins, how one stretches their hand, and other characteristics. This feature works in various lighting conditions and adapts to physiological differences in palm prints. 
The tech can also be used for boarding transport, proving attendance, like at school, work, or events, and in place of a membership card when entering places like a gym. The biometric palm identification payment system has already been tested in uh, Shenzhen, and according to reports, was slow to develop due to a lack of training data. The article notes that Amazon already tested this in 2020, followed by Whole Foods and Panera Bread. Biometric palm payment may improve on facial recognition, since people don't tend to put pictures of their palms across social media, nor do they often have cosmetic surgery on their palms that might disrupt machines' ability to detect modified mugs. Still, there are plenty of security concerns. Waving a hand can be a harmless gesture people don't think about, but could be filmed doing. And similar to a face, but unlike a credit card, a person can't change their palm just because someone has stolen their information. According to Business of Apps, WePay has over 900 million users and has surpassed Alipay to become the most popular Chinese payment service. Almost every shop in China accepts at least one of the two systems. And our last story says private spies hired by the FBI and corporate firms infiltrate Discord, Reddit, and WhatsApp. So this article comes from a reporter I'm not familiar with, so take it with a grain of salt, but... It doesn't sound unrealistic. So the author is alleging that a lot of companies now are engaging in uh, threat intelligence in the form of creating fake social media accounts in order to get access to closed spaces, such as invite-only forums and chat rooms like Reddit, WhatsApp, and Discord, so that they can scrape the content and keep tabs on those spaces. I mean, the article digs into more detail. I believe they cite a whistleblower, if I remember correctly. I took these notes like way earlier this week, so I apologize. I mean... The claim itself is very plausible, and personally, I would be more surprised if this wasn't already happening. Now we're going to move into research. This one's kind of a fun one, and uh, our forum covered this really nicely, so definitely a lot of insight that someone gave on this. But pretty much, Kaspersky says attackers hacked staff iPhones with unknown malware. Kaspersky said that hackers working for a government targeted several dozen employees' iPhones with unknown malware. On Thursday, they announced the alleged cyber attack and published a technical report analyzing it where the company admitted its analysis is not yet complete, so this is still unfolding. The company said the hackers, who at this point are unknown, delivered the malware with a zero-click exploit via an iMessage attachment, and that all events happened with a one to three minute time frame. Kaspersky spokesperson Sawyer Van Horn said in an email to TechCrunch that the company determined that one of the vulnerabilities used in the operation is known and was fixed by Apple in December 2022, but may have been exploited before it was patched, along with other vulnerabilities. The researchers did not say when they discovered the attack and said that they found traces of it going back as far as 2019 and that attack is ongoing and the most recent version of the devices successfully targeted is iOS 15.7. They're now on iOS 16.5, I believe, so this is a little bit older. In a separate statement, Russia's Federal Security Service uh, accused U.S. intelligence mentioning NSA specifically of hacking thousands of of Apple's phones with the goal of spying on Russian diplomats, according to an online translation. The FSB also accused Apple of cooperating with American intelligence. The FSB did not provide evidence for for its claims, and the NSA did not immediately respond to a request for comment. The company declined to attribute the operation to any government or hacking group, saying Kaspersky does not do political attribution. From a separate article, Apple is denying claims made by Russia's FSB that it cooperated with American spies to surveil Russian iPhone users. In a statement, the company said it has never worked with any government to insert a backdoor into any Apple product and never will. All right, so our next story was also a big one that I'm still seeing shared around in some forums. The headline says millions of PC motherboards were sold with a firmware backdoor. So this comes from researchers at Eclipsium. 
which is a cybersecurity company who revealed that they've discovered a hidden mechanism in the firmware of motherboards sold by the Taiwanese manufacturer Gigabyte, whose components are commonly used in gaming PCs and other high-performance computers. While Eclipsium says that the hidden code is meant to be an innocuous tool to keep the motherboard's firmware updated, researchers found that it's implemented insecurely, potentially allowing the mechanism to be hijacked and used to install malware instead of Gigabyte's intended program. And because the updater program is triggered from the computer's firmware outside its operating system, it's tough for users to remove or even discover. In their blog post about the research, Eclipsium lists 271 models of Gigabyte motherboards that researchers say are affected. They added that users who want to see which motherboard their computer uses can check by going to Start in Windows and then System Information. There's tons of tutorials out there to figure out how you do this if you are oh, whatever system you're on. So, Hotpixel's attack checks CPU temperature power changes to steal data. So researchers have developed a new attack they call Hot Pixels, which uses side channel phone behavior like power, temperature, and frequency measurements to retrieve pixels from the content that was displayed in a smartphone's browser and thus infer navigation history. They claim to have a 60 to 94% accuracy and took 8.1 to 22.4 seconds per pixel. They examined M1 and M2 chips, Pixel 6 Pro, and OnePlus 10 Pro devices. They also, they also tested AMD Radeons, GeForce RTX, and Intel Iris Xe. They tested Chrome 108 and Safari 16.2 in default configurations. They found the Radeon RX 6600 to be the leakiest device, while the M1 had the best protection. Safari was not directly impacted due to blocking cookie transmission on iframe elements with different origins than the parent page, but they were able to work around this by sniffing browser history, namely looking for visited links, which are rendered in a different color. The success for this attack was 99.9 to 99.3% and took just 183 seconds to recover 50 visited links. All vendors who were tested have been notified and all claim to be working on mitigations. Okay, and our last research story is just a really quick update. It says Blacklight updated with new tracker list. So for those of you who don't know, the markup, they are a source that we quote very regularly on this show. They do really good research out there, good investigative journalism. They also have a tool called Blacklight where if you type in a website, they will scan it and look for known trackers. They're very open about the fact of like, look, we didn't find any known trackers. That doesn't mean there aren't any. That's just, we couldn't find any, but they have now officially, actually as of the first, so yesterday, they have officially updated it to include even more lists. They were already using the easy list privacy list and DuckDuckGo's tracker radar. They will now include easy list's main list, which includes many, many more trackers. So Good for them for keeping this updated and always pushing to improve. I like the markup. They do really good work. Good job, guys, if any of you happen to be watching this. And now politics. Senators issued satellite phones, offered demonstrations on upgraded security devices. This is a really quick story. This appears to be an optional response to January 6th. So far, only 50 senators have accepted the devices. They are not being used as primary devices, but rather as backups. The Senate Sergeant-at-Arms said they are to be used in case of an emergency that takes out communications. Federal funding will pay for the satellite airtime needed for the devices to work. I also apologize. I didn't include it, but I, I realize now the headline was referencing it. Apparently, they also have like a um, if I understood the article correctly, they have like a a lab of sorts where senators and their staff can go get like hands-on training and demonstrations about like uh, improving the hardening of their devices or like possible other devices they could look into to get to help improve their security. So that's what that second part of the headline was. Okay, this next story comes from EFF, and it is good news. It says, federal judge makes history in holding that border searches of cell phones require a warrant. So this came on May 11th, and it is United States versus Smith. 
A district court judge in New York made history by being the first court to rule that a warrant is required for cell phone searches at the border, absent exigent circumstances. So just for anyone who's never heard that term, exigent, exigent circumstances means like, uh, so for example, if a cop pulls you over here in the US, I can't speak for the rest of the world. If a cop pulls you over and they say, can I search your car? Legally, they cannot search it without a warrant or your consent, but there's an exigent circumstance if they like smell weed, for example. Or, you know, if a cop is walking down the street, they can't just break into your home and search it without a warrant. But if they hear someone screaming inside, then that's an exigent circumstance and they can go ahead and break in. That's that's kind of their loophole to get around things, which is sometimes valid and, of course, is sometimes abused. Anyways, just quoting a couple things from the article. In the fiscal year of 2022, Customs and Border Patrol conducted an all-time high of 45,499 device searches, which is... Holy cow. The article goes on to say the Supreme Court has not yet considered the application of the border search exception to smartphones, laptops, and other electronic devices that contain the equivalent of millions of pages of information detailing the most intimate details of our lives, even though the EFF has asked them to back in 2021. California cops illegally shared data with anti-abortion states, a civil rights group says. Through several public records requests, the EFF found that the listed law enforcement agencies shared license plate data with out-of-state agencies, sensitive information about where people live, work or seek reproductive health services, and other medical care. EFF staff attorneys said in a statement that sharing ALPR data with law enforcement in states that criminalize abortion undermines California's extensive efforts to protect reproductive health privacy. On Friday, the Twitter account for Sacramento County Sheriff's Office, which was not listed in the EFF report, challenged the findings. The Sheriff's Office said that ALPR data is used to investigate serious crimes such as homicide, child kidnappings, human trafficking, and drug trafficking across state borders. The Sheriff's Office then, without evidence, accused the ACLU and EFF of lying as part of a broader agenda to promote lawlessness and prevent criminals from being held accountable. This next headline, I think it comes from Florida, if I read this article correctly. It says, new law protects student data privacy, restricts targeted advertising on education apps. For the record, I'm going to be totally transparent with you guys. I kind of skimmed this right before we started recording. It was like one of those last minute articles that came in. And I think this is one of those thinly veiled, like banning TikTok kind of apps because they went on to discuss TikTok a little later. But anyways, so this is called the Student Online Personal Information Protection Act, and it was signed into law this week and introduces new restrictions on education websites and applications to prevent data data harvesting and targeted advertising. The legislation significantly limits the collection, disclosure, and sale of student data by websites, online services, and applications used for K-12 purposes. Under the bill, the operators of educational technology platforms are prohibited from engaging in targeted advertising based on any information acquired through their platform, including unique identifiers. They are also restricted from creating student profiles, sharing or selling student information to third parties, and disclosing covered information except under specific circumstances. To ensure compliance, operators are required to collect only the necessary information for the operation of their educational technology platforms. They must implement and maintain reasonable security measures to protect student data. Additionally, operators must delete a student's information upon request from the school or district unless explicit consent for data retention is given by the student or their parent guardian. The bill allows for the disclosure of covered information under certain circumstances, such as when required by federal or state law, for legitimate research purposes that do not involve targeted advertising or profiling, 
or when shared with educational agencies for K through 12 school purposes. So with the approved amendment, state universities are permitted to adopt measures to safeguard their networks from cyber threats by adhering to a list of prohibited technologies endorsed by the state. This directive is based upon a consolidated list source from various threat intelligence providers, such as the Federal Department of Homeland Security, the Federal Bureau of Investigations, and the Florida Fusion Center. So for those of you who don't know, the Fusion Center's you should look them up. They're horrifying. It's basically where the federal government and the state government get together and really kick their surveillance into high gear. There's a lot of good articles out there about them. You should definitely look them up. The move aims to protect universities from potential threats such as malware, unauthorized data access, and network breaches that could lead to substantial, substantial reputational and financial damage. Consequently, the list will mandate institutions to implement a protection protocol to prevent the installation and use of banned technologies within their networks, both in hardware and software. So... Arrive Can's erroneous orders urging 10,200 Canadians to quarantine breached Privacy Act, Commissioner says. The Commissioner's report released Tuesday follows an investigation into events beginning June 28, 2022, that saw about 10,200 Apple device users receive erroneous messages instructing them to quarantine or risk fines of as much as $5,000. The automated messages were owning to a database error that mistakenly identified some fully vaccinated travelers as unvaccinated. The investigation was launched in response to a complaint from Matt Malone, an assistant professor in the Faculty of Law at Thompson Rivers University. Professor Malone said Tuesday that the report vindicates his complaint that the government did not appropriately safeguard Canadians' personal information as it relates to the ArriveCan app, but he still took issue with the commissioner's response and said that the situation demonstrates why Canada urgently needs to update its privacy, artificial intelligence, and data protection legislation and ensure that new laws apply to federal departments and agencies. With that, we'll move into FOSS, free and open source software. We're going to start off with some relatively exciting news, depending on your Linux distro of choice. A Snap-based containerized Ubuntu desktop could be offered in 2024. So according to Ubuntu product manager Oliver Smith, Ubuntu has been steadily improving desktop snaps, and in due course, when we think the entire system can be delivered this way, a desktop core version will be offered. Ubuntu's post suggested a core-based desktop would allow for secure boot, recovery states, and hardware-backed encryption, experiments with alternative desktop environment snaps, and opting into certain kernel channels such as those with the latest NVIDIA drivers. Ubuntu Core has existed since 2014, providing a fully containerized, immutable Linux distribution aimed at the Internet of Things and edge computing applications. Each piece of the system contains all the dependencies it requires and just enough of its own tiny Linux architecture that applications are largely sandboxed from one another, providing better security and, in theory, stability and ease of upgrades and rollbacks. That kind of system, based on Ubuntu Distributed Canonical's own snap package format, could be available for desktop users with the next Ubuntu long-term support release, according to an Ubuntu mobile engineer. It's important to note that a snap-based Ubuntu would seemingly be an alternate option and not the primary desktop offered. Deb-based Ubuntu would almost certainly remain the mainstream release, unquote. Up next, Molvad, the VPN. So this is Molvad VPN, not the browser or anything, but port forwarding, this is from them, in general has added value if you're wanting to allow a friend or family to access a service running behind their VPN. This could be a legitimate website, a game server, or even access your self-hosted server. Unfortunately, port forwarding also allows avenues for abuse, which in some cases can result in a far worse experience for the majority of users. You know, I'm going to TLDR this. They're removing support for this. This was part of the reason that they say law enforcement contacted them. And also, this is part 
part of the reason why their IPs were getting blacklisted and their hosting providers were canceling them. So as of today, they will be removing the ability of adding ports to all accounts. And in July 1st, they will be removing all existing ports that are configured. So please update services accordingly. You will see similar warnings on the accounts page on the website when you log in. So this next post comes from Newpipe. And actually, I'm going to be honest, this is a signal boost. The headline says planning a new modern and stable Newpipe. This is a a long post that we're kind of summarizing. The new pipe developers are asking for help. They know that their code is really getting messy and outdated and a little unstable, possibly vulnerable. It's relying on some older libraries and stuff. They are trying to update, but they are really struggling with it. You know, these small projects are not always well-funded. A lot of the time it's people doing this like in their free time. So they've got other things to worry about. They've got day jobs, friends, family, social lives, And then expertise as well. They straight up acknowledge that. They're like, look, this is a huge undertaking. It's kind of uncharted territory for us. So they are asking for help both with advice and code. So if you have done a rewrite like this or you've seen it done and you can offer some advice on like what to steer clear of and what to what you should do, things to take into account. Or if you're like familiar with the code and you're like, hey, I can I can help rewrite this. I guess also they'd probably be interested if you can volunteer resources, if you have any like funding or I don't know if they need servers. I don't know what they need, but if you have anything you think you can actually offer, please let the developers know per their post. I'm going to go ahead and share this. Try to refrain from frivolous comments. Like, you know, don't just say like, Hey, love new pipe, wishing you the best. Hope this works out. Excited for the rewrite. Please include this. Try to avoid that kind of stuff. They're, they're really trying to like keep this thing on topic and efficient. So And then of course, as always, there's more details in the post. So if if you think you might be able to help with this or know somebody who might, definitely go ahead and check that out, share it with people, all that fun stuff. PyPy has announced mandatory use of 2FA for all software publishers. So the Python Package Index, or PyPy, has announced that it will require every account that manages a project on the platform to have 2FA turned on by the end of the year. They are a software repository for packages created in the Python programming language. The index hosts 200,000 packages, allowing devs to find existing packages that satisfy various project requirements, saving them time and effort. They were subpoenaed not too long ago for some IP addresses, and PyPy says bye-bye to as many IP address data as it can. The article claims that PyPy was already trying to reduce user data to reduce risk of privacy intrusion or exposure as far back as 2020, but this does unfortunately also come on the heels of having law enforcement subpoena user data on five users earlier this year. One such solution is salting and hashing IP addresses so they could still protect against rate limiting or suspicious activity without actually knowing the IP addresses. So to me, this speaks to how, you know, any company is really trying to take privacy seriously knows that the best thing to do is to just avoid collecting data in the first place because then you can't really enforce or, you know, comply with these kinds of requests that are made. So I think that's Mulvad's main approach to a lot of what they do. Everything Mulvad does is tends to just revolve around limiting as much user data as possible so that they have nothing on users. That's something that I think every company can probably take as a lesson, to be honest. Less is better. Finally, let's get into misfits. We just have one quick story. The headline says, clever file archiver in the browser phishing trick uses zip domains. Quoting the article here, a new file archivers in the browser phishing kit abuses zip domains by displaying fake WinRAR WinRAR or Windows file explorer windows in the browser to convince users to launch malicious files. Quick side note, they have a screenshot of it in the article. It looks relatively convincing. I could definitely see how some people would fall for this. Earlier this month, Google began offering the ability to register zip TLD, uh, TLD domains. 
such as bleepingcomputer.zip for hosting websites or email addresses. Since the TLD's release, there has been quite a bit of debate over whether they are a mistake and could pose a cybersecurity risk to users. Unquote. Basically, this article talks about how a researcher has already created a proof of concept file that can be opened in the browser and looks exactly like opening a zip file. So it looks like you're opening a zip file, but it, it's really malware. Well, it's it's phishing, not malware, but which I guess is similar to opening a zip file, but it's just another avenue of attack. And that is it. Let's go into the Q&A. Real quick for patrons, I just want to let you guys know, we have moved our recording time up. Uh, we used to record Saturday afternoons. We're now recording Friday nights. So if you want to submit a question, probably the best time, like the cutoff would be probably like noon Pacific time, give or take. We record in the evenings, so... I don't know. Just try to get your questions in before then if you can. And if you miss the deadline, you can always repost next week. Or if we don't answer your question for whatever reason, you can always repost next week and try again. First question is from Private Paul. Henry, I know you drive a Tesla, and I was wondering if you have concerns about all the data that your car sends to Tesla. I understand that EVs send lots of data to their manufacturers. Do you know what data is sent, and if any is personally identifying? Can you opt out? Thanks. First off, I did a review of this and I covered some thoughts on Tesla. Whether or not that means I drive one is up to the world to decide. Either way, the advice is going to be the same regardless of what car you drive and what I drive. So first off, I don't know why you're classifying EVs as being different. Pretty much any new car, I haven't really seen much reason to think that EVs are collecting any more or less data than any other car. This is more of a time frame issue, which is like any new car developed in the last five years is likely collecting a lot of information about you and your driving habits and submitting it. So that's what I'd be looking more towards because actually some of the older EVs don't even collect really any data and they're more like traditional cars. So I'd be looking at the year that your car was made. Now regarding information your cars collect, I actually would look at the, do you remember the name of the website? Um, Hold on, I, I'm actually about to go find, oh, God dang it. Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons on May 29th just put out a whole episode about vehicle privacy and they mentioned that website, privacyforcars.com, privacy, the number four, cars.com. Yep, that was it. Thank you, that's the site. And yes, uh, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons just did an interview with them, which covers a lot more of this. Pretty much your car collects, I would say just about everything you could think it could collect. The speed you're going, where you're going. Like some cars can even tell, like, information about the driver as well, depending on the kind of sensors and what kind of data is collected by the car. If cars have cameras, it could also record video and things like that. And so what you're going to have to do is every specific car manufacturer is more or less collecting similar data. What you need to do is you need to go and do the basics that we always recommend. So make sure everything stays up to date for basic security. But it's, uh, on the privacy front, make sure that you are at least aliasing some information on your accounts when you can. Enable two-factor if your car accounts or anything has that. And then try to opt out of any options that are given to you. This is just a very new field, and it's very hard for us to make sense of this whole information. I mean, a few years ago, you know, I was doing all the, the Tesla coverage, and I was really diving into it, and I was just trying to find people who knew anything about anything, and I couldn't find a damn thing. And I was contacting Tesla every possible way imaginable. I couldn't get anything from them. I was reaching out to other people. Other people didn't really seem to know anything. And so this is just a very new thing. And I think that we're going to have to be patient to see some more things that you can do. If you live in California, there's going to be some more rights that you have or other states with privacy regulation. So reach out to your car manufacturers and tell them you know, that you want to request your data or possibly delete data or modify data, or you want to opt out of any services on the car etc. I think that's going to be your best bet right now outside of any superficial opt-outs within your cars. 
our last question comes from Alan, and it says, as I'm sure you've heard slash experienced over the last week or so, Google has been rate limiting Aurora, effectively blocking large numbers of people from updating their apps on various OSs, Android ROMs. While this seems to be passing, it illustrated the danger of reliance on a single service. My question is, are you aware of an alternative to Aurora or a way to check for updates on mobile devices? Oh man, I hate to keep doing this because I know I did this last week. So this morning I was listening to Michael Basil's show. He said that he also just pushed out, I think, an update to his latest book that offers some suggestions. I have not read it yet. I'm going to be totally honest with you, but he might have some thoughts. I know there is one OS that sandboxes Google. If you feel comfortable using that one, that might be an option. I, I mean, I think for the open source stuff, I think everybody pretty much knows to use APKs or Fdroid or Obtanium or Neo or whatever. For the stuff that you can't get anywhere else, I I really don't know. Um, do you know if it's possible to download Play on like a like Calyx or anything Lineage, anything like that? I don't know, Is but with Aurora, you can log in with Google through Aurora. But weren't there rumors that they were banning accounts? That right. That? Well, I was gonna, I was just about to finish and say that. Um, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Um, you can use Google to log in through Aurora, but I would never suggest logging into these like weird third-party open-source things with like a sensitive Google account. So if you have a throwaway account or anything like that, you can always use that within Aurora. And you know what? This isn't a, an Aurora-specific issue. I really want people to think, and this is why um, we sometimes talk about this behind the scenes. I want you to really think about the services you use on a day-to-day basis, because even if you're not directly engaging with Google, you likely still are. You know, if you use Newpipe or something like that, unless you're watching all your creators on uh, PeerTube via Newpipe, you're still actually watching YouTube content and you're still dependent on Google and YouTube. So I really encourage people to think about what's happened to Aurora. Aurora should be up right now. And if you want instructions on how to do that, that was like a whole discussion on our forum and people are kind of like figure out how to make it work again. So everything's good now, but this should be a big wake up call to people that you can't rely on like just one or two developers developing something because Google can kind of shut it down whenever they want, if they really wanted to. If you are still dependent on some of these apps, which I totally get, I'm reminded of, I don't know if you're able to find a link for it, but I remember there was a whole Mastodon thread where you asked about, uh, or somebody asked about um, progressive web apps and like sites that support it or apps that support it. And I remember being really surprised at some of the answers like Tinder, Uber, all of these different apps surprisingly support progressive web apps. Do you watch TechLore content? I shill these I mean, web apps when like it's not a freaking hour long. Mister Techlore talks. That wasn't on. Ain't nobody got time talks. for that. I just I shill web apps in like every video because it's true. Bumble, Tinder, um, Todoist. No, I'm talking about a thread on Mastodon. I'm not talking about one of your videos. Well, I'm, t- I'm saying we cover this every for like last year. We talk about this. I'm not talking about your Mastodon thread. I'm saying it's cool because like these web apps are so like universal. Everything can be used pretty much in a web app. And so, yeah, there's so many ways to become like independent of things and break dependence on things like app stores and whatnot. And with that, we're going to wrap up this episode. That's all we got for this week. So Amazon Ring got hit with a a big, really scary story. Be sure to share that with all your friends and families. Kaspersky claims that their iPhones were hit with an interesting new spyware. They are, as Henry said, they're still investigating. That was actually the whole thing is they were calling for help with investigation. So if we hear anything, we'll keep you updated. Plenty of data breaches. There's almost always data breaches to share. Much, much more. So stay tuned. Stay subscribed. We always have updates to stories. Things are always changing out there. Our promo segment, as always, you want to help us keep going. It really helps to get that money to support. It just helps us keep going. It pays for the different services we use. It 
pays for us and our time so that we don't have to be so dependent on other sources of income. And the best way to do that is Patreon. If you join Patreon, $5 a month, you get to ask a question. If we missed your question, please repost it and we'll see if we can get around to it again. $10 a month and you don't have to listen to these pitches. You get more of our ramblings. Lately, we've been recording like hour and a half episodes for some reason. And those get severely cut down, but the Patreon episodes are usually, you know, 10, 15 minutes longer. So if you want to hear more of our thoughts, that's one way to do that. If you're not interested in any of that stuff, but you still want something recurring, there is LibrePay. And if you just want to protect your privacy as much as possible, we accept Monero. We don't see anything about you, but we do see all the contributions and we are extremely grateful for your support. Thank you for keeping us going. So thank you for listening to the surveillance report. The final thing we want to ask of you as always share the podcast around, make sure that you are subscribed to get those sweet, sweet updates. Give us a rating. If you're on a platform where that's an option, leave comments, especially on places like YouTube. It really helps with the algorithm, share us around, like all that kind of stuff. We're trying to reach as many people as possible with the message of privacy and everything you do helps with that. So thank you again for listening and we'll see you next week.